Don't Shoot the Deputies. Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Evening, Steve. Good to see you as always. Evening, Russell. Now, we realised some time ago, didn't we, Steve, that a massive gap in our podcast history was a really good conversation about SEND, inclusive practice and behaviour. Yes, absolutely, Russell. It's something that we're both passionate about getting right in our own schools. It's something we've talked such a little amount about on our podcast so far. Uh, Just out of interest with you, Russell, would you say that SEND was a strength of your teacher training or did you have to figure it out along the way? Yeah, I mean, I love my teacher training, Steve, but I would say on my PGC, it probably wasn't as prominent as it needed to be. And as a result of that, I can actually remember going to a recruitment fair when I was looking for my first job. And there was a stand all about a sort of specialist provision. And at that time, it just didn't even occur to me that I could work somewhere like that. And that was perhaps part of me sort of not feeling very confident or, or having enough subject knowledge in that area. Uh, yet my first school that I ended up working in had a speech and language unit and it served a wide variety of children, including the many children who were autistic. And as my career has progressed, I've definitely developed a huge passion for supporting children with a range of needs and ensuring I understand the factors that might set them up to either achieve or indeed not in the settings I've worked in. So it's something I've developed a love for, Steve, and an interest in, but I can't say that I knew very much about this when I started teaching. How about you? Yeah, I'd say that's exactly the same for me, actually, Russell, I mean, I remember getting my first class list as uh, NQT just before you're about to go in and you think, cool, I've only had so many seminars on SEND and, and you've learned a little bit on the PGCE, but actually when you're given that class list and there's about 20, 25% SEND within the classroom, it's quite daunting suddenly you think, right, what, what have I got in my armour to, to know how to cope with this? And I feel like I've learned a lot along the way and I, I've got a real passion for SEND and I've relished listening to... Uh, a podcast like the one we're doing tonight as that could be helping give a understanding of SEND before I step foot in the classrooms NQT so hopefully it's to be beneficial to all. Yeah absolutely and we hope that tonight's conversation will benefit you whatever stage of your career. Now we searched high and low for great people to talk about uh, this particular issue and we were spoiled for recommendations but one person who was suggested to us was Gareth Morwood and what appealed to us about Gareth is he seemed to have a really accessible and down-to-earth way of talking about SEND and we felt like he'd be the perfect guest for our podcast. So I'll let him say a bit more about himself in a moment but Gareth a huge welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. And it's uh, great to be here. So thanks for the invitation. No, pleasure is ours. Thank you for joining us, Gareth. Could you start, Gareth, by telling us both about why inclusive practice is your passion and what experience you've had in this field to date? I think it's really interesting. And I think the more work I'm sort of doing now online as all of us are, the more I'm reflecting about things that have happened and thinking, oh, I did that not so long ago. And you look back and it was 12 years you wrote it or something like that, you know, and it's amazing how when you reflect and just see what's happened, because I don't think you get time really when you're in school all the time to reflect properly. And we'll talk probably, I would think, as the the session goes on, more about reflective practice being really important, I think. But um, I suppose I I, um, did a a secondary B.Ed. in the mid-90s which was a pretty rare qualification at the time. So I I sort of left straight from school at 18 and was teaching when I was 21. And uh, that was an interesting experience that I'll never forget. Um, One of my first uh, year nine classes with nine students 
students in it and three extra adults. And I was going in as a 21-year-old thing, this is fantastic. Look at all these extra people here. And realizing quite soon that was the wrong question I should have been asking. Why are there three people here? Anyway, um, so there's some good stories from that, from that uh, experience where I spent five years, which um, uh, probably are not for the podcast. But uh, one thing's for sure, you, you, you learn your craft, if that makes sense. And I, I think when we talked, and you talked initially there about teacher training and things, for me, it's a bit like driving a car. You really learn how to drive a car when you pass your test. And I think those initial years uh, of uh, working as a teacher are, are really formative. And I think that's where the support from the profession and, and how people uh, enable people to develop their skills and their craft is so important. And, and so thinking more about some inclusive practice coming from that, you know, it really stems from, for me, uh, the Salamanca Statement from 1994, which in essentially said, you know, if you, you, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to as an individual, whatever your starting point, ethnicity, disability, special need, uh, from going to your local school. Uh, and for me, that's the core of it, really. Both schools that I, I've worked in have been about community, have supported the environment and the, the community they work with. And when I uh, sort of did my master's degree in the late 90s, you know, I remember the Open University, the tapes that you used to get and the videos to put in, the old VHS, you know. Uh, and uh, one thing that really sticks in my mind as I reflect, you know, on those tapes uh, was Professor Klaus Waddell, who has written loads of stuff and was really inspirational. Uh, and I got to know Klaus pretty well. And I was pretty excited when he agreed to write the foreword to my first book as well. So I think one thing that's really important for me, and I think you find within sort of teaching particularly, but also particularly within the sort of STEM community is that, that people get to know each other and people support each other. And that idea of collaboration and working with people is, is really important in, in what I've done really. Uh, and I suppose just to bring that up to speed, I spent 17 years as secondary SENCO uh, working with a, a large number of young people with very different needs uh, and specific um SEN and, and disabilities and, and we'll talk more about that I'm sure uh, and then coming full speed now I, I'm working full-time with Professor Andy McDonald at Studio 3 as the educational advisor uh, trying to draw on some of the stuff that, that's been done in clinical settings to do with low arousal and non-restrictive practices and develop uh, ways of working with schools about that so uh, it, it's pretty exciting I think I'll be looking forward to Easter and a Zoom free period I've got to say but uh, I think everybody is and I think you know one thing to recognize you know every day i talk to head teachers parents or carers or even young people when i'm working with young people who are educated at home and currently and 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 it's extremely challenging at the moment and i think you know it, it's uh, important at the moment to, to recognize that and i'll give my sort of personal nod to everybody who's been uh, balancing those challenges at this time and 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 really do hope that there's better times ahead for sure so um Hopefully that's in a nutshell to start. Is that all right, gents? <laughs> that's perfect. Thanks, Gareth. That gives us a real insight into your background. So one thing we're aware of tonight, Gareth, is there's no way we'll cover everything there is to say on the topic of SEND. But maybe could you give us a start by giving us a sense of why our schools are often such a complex and challenging environment for many of our children to navigate their way through? For me, the key things about why schools are challenging, you know, are the fact that the environment and, and the context in which we're asking young people to, to learn and to engage and to understand 
is very complex. And, and a, an example I use quite um, regularly is one from um, a colleague and, and a good friend of mine, Peter Van Mullen, who talks a lot about what we call context blindness. Uh, and if I give you the analogy, if you arrive at a set of pedestrian lights and the, the red person's on the uh, on the, the sort of screen there, you press the button and you wait. And so you've been told red man means stop. Crack it, there we go. You press the button, it goes green, and you progress across the road. Now, if you arrive at those lights another time and you take one pace on because it's green and then it goes red, you probably take a pace back, think I'm not going to make that, it's just gone red, and press the button and wait and then progress. And similarly, if you get three quarters of the way across and it goes red, you probably rush on. So already the red man means go back, stop, rush on. But depending upon where the context of the red man appears, you interpret that and make a decision. Now, actually, that's really hard for some of the learners that, that we would be working with. If you've taught some uh, uh, a young person, you know, red man means stop, they're halfway across the road, they're going to stop. Well, you told me to stop there. What are you on about? Get over there, you know, come on. <laughs> and this happens, for example, in school canteens where you've got that queuing system, you know, with those sort of silver poles and the little stretchy thing. I used to have in post offices when you had post offices, you remember, you know. Uh, and you'd sort of go in between that. Now, if you've been told you've got to queue up in that, but you go early for lunch uh, and you're a bit late because the teacher didn't let you out and the person on duty there, you're queuing up, going through the thing and they're saying, we haven't got time for that. Hurry up, get to the front to do that. But you told them to go through the queue. So actually the language we use and how we set things up, I think is really important. The second thing I think is really important as well is understanding what we call emotional contagion. Uh, and again, a colleague of ours, Bo uh, Elvin, talks a lot about this in the fact that actually, you know, if somebody goes in quite high and highly aroused or in a state you know it passes on to other people doesn't it and similarly if we create a calm and purposeful environment that tends to reflect in others as well and school canteens are a great example of where emotional contagion noise sensory issues all these things come up and the, and the other thing i think is really important to understand is the environment you can't operate as an individual without interacting with other people or the environment it's impossible yeah so actually, I talk a lot about what's within our gift to change. Well, I can do things to change the environment by uh, perhaps putting uh, dampening tiles on the ceiling in a noisy classroom that's reverberating or perhaps pouring uh, lights that are less bright in, in a room so it's not so uh, you know much of a sensory overload. Um, I can do things that make a massive difference in how the day works. So get rid of the school bells and allow teachers just to let people go when the time goes so we get this calm exit as opposed to big secondary school bell goes for lunch it's like you know speedy boarding on easy jet you know you remember that when we used to fly places or at the front of the stampede on jumanji good luck with that uh, and you know and the reality is there's tons of things we can do that change the environment and support ourselves as adults within it that then allow young people to 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 be able to engage better, learn better, function better throughout the day. Uh, and so for me, what's really important is about to start with understanding some of the complexities and then also understanding there are some real simple things we can do that can make a massive impact. Uh, and it's really about, as our colleague and, and friend Ellie Chapel says, flipping that narrative and changing that, not trying to make a young person fit into a system, but to look at how we allow that young person to be themselves by how we're operating as, a, as an institution, as a school, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And actually, it's fascinating to talk about 
low arousal states and emotional regulation. And something you talk a lot about, Gareth, is um, autism and ADHD when you're talking about within your training. Can you tell us more about this and perhaps give our listeners a better understanding of the challenges children with autism or, or ADHD might face in a school environment? Again, I, I think probably I see things quite uniquely uh, with a lot of things. I suppose I've, I've always been a bit of a, a sort of an individual with that regard in, in, in everything. And I think um, there are some significant issues, in my view, about people assuming um, this is what we do for autistic kids, or oh, this is how we work with ADHD, or they need medication. What are you on about? Or you may hear uh, somebody in a school setting saying something along the lines of, "Well, they should be in a specialist school." Then, well, you know, what are they doing here? And, and the reality is that person maybe hasn't even seen what specialist provision is like in the last 20 years or or you get um, this is where obviously um, professional development and ongoing uh, understanding is really, really vital because you get into that you get the risk of falling into that situation where people are saying they've had 20 years of experience, whereas really they've had one year's worth of experience 20 times. Uh, and, and, you know, stuff we know now about cognitive science, about what's a good investment in learning in the classroom and things, all these things are good strategies for everybody. And if you think of what's a good strategy for the young people who have diagnosis, additional needs, have had uh, difficult starts in life, et cetera, or perhaps are in care, et cetera, these are good strategies for everybody. So, the key to being a good inclusive school for me is really good, strong, inclusive teaching and learning. Uh, and, and, you know, the core business is teaching kids, isn't it, at a school? You know, so actually we want to set up the learning environment and how we're offering learning to the young people in a way that's best for everybody. Uh, and a good strategy for an autistic learner does not harm a, a non-autistic peer, you know, and I think it's really important to understand that. So good, calm, consistent routines are essential for me. Uh, and I, I wrote a blog recently about what, what I sort of term constant consistency in, in the fact that we want to have those environments and the whole school ethos that provides that framework for learners in which to work. And if there's lots of uncertainty or things that change all the time or one lesson where one rule's applied and another one where it's different, you create that fragmentation, which sort of breeds dysregulation in effect. So for me, I think that the key thing is not thinking about the autistic child or the young person who's being diagnosed with this, but it's thinking about what's a good strategy for, for individual learners and how we can replicate that across the, 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 the whole school, if you like. I think that's a really refreshing perspective, Gareth. You, you sort of uh, read my mind on my next question, which was I was going to talk about exactly that, that so often we're told that the strategies we might use for a particular child's needs will benefit others. And you've touched on some of those there. So you've talked about things like routines. Are there any other strategies that you give examples of where they might have been set up initially to meet a particular child's needs, but actually everyone benefits? Oh, oh absolutely. You know, uh, and, and I think, again, for me, when I first started teaching as a 21-year-old, bearing in mind, you know, I, I was uh, at university as an 18-year-old going in teaching 16-year-old kids in secondary schools in Manchester. So you, you can imagine what that was like. There's some, uh, some good stories there as well. But anyway, uh, and, uh, you know, one thing that always we said, and, and, and this really sticks with me, for me, the first five minutes and the last five minutes of the lesson are key. Uh, it, it's about how you establish that as a, as a teacher you are sort of 
you know, running the learning, aren't you, in that environment, supporting the structure of how things work. Uh, you know, so greeting people at the door, having very calm, consistent approaches. You know, even, um, you know, groups of year 11 lads, I don't know of anybody that doesn't like to learn in a calm consistent place you know whether they say it or not is another thing of course and and so you know I, I wouldn't be adverse to doing things like group breathing exercises and things as a way to reframe the emotional state of the group have really consistent approaches I'm a big fan of saying we've got seven minutes of this and having it on the board and a counter that counts down seven minutes and moving on Providing that structure for learning reduces a lot of the stresses that some uh, learners might struggle with of uncertainty. And let's be honest, you know, we've all done this, you know, whether you admit it or not, Friday afternoon, get the word search out, see if I can eke this out for an hour, you know. Uh, and <laughs> the kids are saying, oh, we found all the words on that. So see if you can find a word that's not listed at the bottom, you know, that'll keep them going. Anyway, you know, and, and the reality is, it's a bit like starting a race in the Olympics. The gun goes, you run as fast as you can past the 100 metre line and go, I've won, where's my medal? It was 1,500 metres, this, crack on. You can never perform to your best if you don't know the parameters in which you work. So this not only helps people progress through what they're doing in the lesson and the learning stages, but also reduces the stresses of the uncertainty about knowing what's happening or what's coming along. And actually, I think everybody benefits from clarity. Yeah, I really do. And I think um, when there's uncertainty or changes in routine or structure or assumptions about language and context, like we started off with, with, with the uh, analogy about crossing the road, for example, that can cause massive stress to some learners. And when their stresses outweigh their ability to cope, what happens? Kaboom, you know, it, it, it becomes a moment of dysregulation. Um, so there's a ton of things I think we can do in how we set up learning that reduces stresses, but also really focuses on the core business of teaching and learning, really, which for me is, is what schools are there for, really. That is a fantastic overview and a reflection, actually. I think so much advice within what you just said. One danger, Gareth, when we talk about individuals with autism or ADHD is that we can actually forget that behind those labels are very unique individuals. And I know personally, I've got a um, 12 year old in, at home. He has uh, medicated for ADHD and he's on the pathway for autism as well. Uh, could you tell us about the importance of relationships in schools and how we can come to really understand each individual's unique challenges, but also that they possess gifts and abilities themselves? Absolutely. And the, the key here is is really focusing on the individual. That, that's essential. Uh, and so I've, I've got to quote two colleagues of mine who, who I'm very fortunate to, to know very well. Uh, Dr. Damien Milton, who uh, talks a lot about the idea of personalization, not normalization. Uh, and, and for me, it's not about saying that's a 12 year old with ADHD. It's about knowing that that's Alex or Ahmed or Sarah or whoever, because everybody's unique within that. And, and Professor Rita Jordan sums this up nicely with, with a quote, if I may, where she talks about the need for schools where difference is valued and there's uh, less emphasis on conformity and greater focus in harnessing strengths to enable staff and students alike to be the best they can become. You know, and, and for me, you know, when we're thinking about 
how we define success, what's the purpose of, of schooling, etc. You know, it reminds me of when I was fortunate enough to, to go out and work um, in Chile for the first time in 2016. Uh, and I've been really quite fortunate combining my Senko role, if you like, we're doing quite a bit of work in, in different schools, but also in different countries. And in Chile in 2016, they brought in an inclusion law, which basically said, if you had SEN disability, or you were allowed to go to school, right? You know, and so we were talking to 60 head teachers teachers um, uh, who were um, white blokes in the 50s or 60s saying, oh, this is fantastic. Look at all this. And now let's just say the, the polite version is that was quite a tough audience. Uh, you know, uh, and the reality is, as a, a colleague and friend, uh, Lorraine Peterson says, you don't know what you don't know. You know what I mean? So actually, if people aren't aware of things, how are they going to know what to do? So the key, I think, coming back to what, what you said to start with there about the individual young person it, it is about co-production for me. And that's about working with young people and families on an equal footing right from the start. You know, and I think the problem with sort of lip service co-production is when the professionals assume what the challenges are. What we need to do is work with young people and families in jointly identifying these challenges and jointly working on solutions. And I think the problem with assumptions here is that somebody says, well, I taught an autistic boy three years ago, so we do this. Yeah, well, you haven't met Sam yet. How do you know? You know what I mean? Sort of thing. Uh, and so the, the idea or where people... And people love to, as we call it, catastrophize situations where they'll draw on the, the most extreme example and say, well, I can't do something, if you know what I mean. Uh, and uh, it's like the old, well, I can't have him in my class. He's going to stab somebody with the scissors. And I sort of say, I can guarantee he's not going to stab somebody with the scissors. You want to know how? I said, don't have the scissors out. There we go. We saw it that one. So uh, that's obviously why I get all these uh, important invitations and things, you know, words of wisdom. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I joke aside, but the, the reality is that actually you can't have a personalized approach unless you have a good, constant, and consistent approach as a school, because you can't have personalization outside of structure. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and, and I think this is where people go too far one way or the other way or pick up things and programs that are written for specialists, really unique settings and try and apply the most school without understanding. Actually, you need the structure and routine that then allows you to be personalized within it. Uh, otherwise, you get this sort of chaos, really, and, and that's where this idea of constant consistency comes in for me. So uh, I went off a bit on one there, so hopefully that, that answers the question a little bit. No, I think it's such an important issue, isn't it, that individualised approach and, and, and treating children as the unique wonderful human beings they are and not just the labels that uh, they, they sometimes come with um leading on from that gareth we've we've all been in that situation speaking of kind of uniqueness of uh you know we've perhaps got a, a class and we've got a, a pupil perhaps with a condition or a disability or something we've never come across before and for teachers that can be really frightening not because they don't want to meet that need but because it's something new so just what advice would you give to teachers and indeed senkos as well because i think even experienced senkos sometimes have these moments where they as a pupil joins a school with, with perhaps something quite unique that they've never come across in their career so far what's the best thing that we can do in that situation to make sure that we meet those needs as best as we can 
Yeah, I mean, I always used to say sort of a, a bit jokingly, you know, to, to kids in school and to families, you know, that saying, well, you know, every time I get something wrong, I learn something new. So that's why I learn so much every day, you know, and it's true, really, you know, in every time you think about something or you experience something new, it's a fantastic opportunity to learn. And for me, in the situation you sort of just described there, Russell, I, I would be saying, well, speak to the family and the young person, you know, who's going to know better about themselves than the young person? And, and if it's a pre verbal learner we need to find a way of uh, allowing them to communicate or, or to allow the adults in their lives to support us within that and you know it, it's about going in uh, in a solution focused way for me you know what I mean it's not about saying well we can't do this because it's about saying actually how could we do this yeah and one of the things coming back to, to the work we did in Chile one of the things that really struck me was uh, one of the biggest barriers to being inclusive at that time was how they defined success which was purely on a, an academic output. Now, for me, success is about preparing young people for adulthood. Now, some of that is academic uh, results. But for me, as a secondary school, it was about the fact that our needs figures, not in employment, educational training, was zero. So every single child went on to education, employment or training. Now, some of those young people only had like one GCSE in art and an entry level maths qualification, but went on to do a level three art course at, uh, at the college. So preparing people for adulthood and understanding how you define success is a core part of this. Understanding young people with uh, perhaps needs that you haven't come across before or a unique uh, presentation is all about talking to and working with families and young people and being open to that. And I, I, I think that's the, the key element, really, or the, the one thing I would suggest is most important in that situation. I have to say, you have me smiling then, um, Gareth, because you reminded me of just such a lovely moment in a previous role when I had to step in at the very last moment and teach a class. And there was a pupil with quite a rare sort of skin condition in that class. And about halfway through the lesson that I thought I was nailing, one of the children said to me, oh, don't forget to do their eye drops. And I had this moment of panic where I thought, <laughs> what do you what do you do? And the class found this very amusing. And, and, and about five kids, including the child himself basically coached me through it meanwhile the child themselves giggled you know non-stop as I missed their eyes <laughs> missed their eyes and got it wrong and eventually <laughs> we got through it together but it was just such a beautiful learning experience because it was just one of those great examples where the mm. child had been in that class with those kids uh, for years and they 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 knew exactly how I needed to meet her needs and coached me through that experience beautifully and I think what you said about just being open to learning I definitely learned something that day and got over this fear of oh I couldn't do that if I needed to so yeah I think that's a really lovely message and that reminds me actually we used to take um all of uh, year seven so you know 240 kids to um the conway center in menai i don't you know it's in anglesey there which is a sort of outward bounds canoeing climbing sort of place which is also interestingly where i spent my nqt weekend <laughs> 25 years earlier <laughs> it's one of these places that hasn't changed at all you know anyway um, and um, i remember um a young lady there getting uh, what they called an all-terrain wheelchair now, if you've ever tried pushing one of them through a muddy forest, uh, I think there's a trace description of that, <laughs> if you ask me. I thought there's another hernia going on. And we were doing bushcraft, and we were trying to light this 
uh, this uh, sort of bit of cotton wool in a howling gale. It absolutely carnaged you. And every time it lit, it blew out all this. So I said, right, just hold this. Here we go. And as soon as we got it lit, what happened? It blew inside this young lady's coat. So we had to put it out and there was a big panic in that. Yeah, all right. But then she got home. The, the mum met us off the coach and I knew the family pretty well. And, uh, I, and so I said, oh, did you have a good time? And so, oh, did you get on to it? Oh, it was fine. Apart from Mr. Moore set me on fire. And I'm going, well, technically this is... <laughs> Let me just give a bit of context. And I think, you know, uh, for me, the biggest untapped resource in our schools are other kids. I think kids are inherently inclusive, inquisitive, supportive. And, and this comes into being open and honest and how our curriculum supports uh, understanding of the diverse populations that we educate now. And I think, you know, humour goes a long way with that for me, I think. I think it's so important. Anyway, I'll uh, leave that to start tale for another time. <laughs> Hundred <laughs> percent agree with that, and children are the finest asset. Actually, uh, Gareth, if we can now turn our attention in the conversation more towards behaviour, one thing uh, I've heard you talk about before is that you're not overly keen on the term managing behaviour. Can you tell us why this is? Yeah, so, so I, I think when I talk particularly about some of the work we do with autistic learners and uh, uh, for the like, I think. Um, Often there's assumptions when we talk about managing behavior that we're trying to normalize uh, these young people into a, a prescription somebody else is giving. Uh, and actually a good example of this could be, uh, say, simming or, or regular repetitive movements that actually serve as a de-arousing function. Um, and, and so if you have a, a system where you say, well, you can't do that, you know, stop flicking your hands around, put them on the table, whatever. It's a bit akin in, in my view to saying, well, you're going to have to manage without your wheelchair today or no, you're not allowed to hearing aid today, crack on, you know, sort of thing. And actually, you know, I don't think anybody would think that that's an appropriate thing to do, whatever your, your stance on anything. And so for me, when you use the term managing behavior, it's very easy to get into that view that you're trying to suppress things that young people need or uh, coping mechanisms that they use. And so rather than talking about sort of behavior in that way, we would like to uh, suggest that the language of stress and coping is much more positive in that response. So uh, in essence, we have external stresses that influence us and we have coping responses that balance those out or don't balance those out when the stresses outweigh our coping responses. Uh, and, and when we're talking before about this idea of co-production and working with young people and families, you know, we um, use a a model of what we call student passports people have one-page profiles all sorts of things and if you think back to the old-fashioned ieps there used to be people imposing targets on people well after the event wasn't there you know so you know i think back when i first started as a senko i'd do a review meeting in january it would be easter i was typing it up i think it's like the horse hasn't bolted it's eight fields away over here you know and nobody looked at an ip you had a pe teacher says learn your cvc words you're thinking what the hell am i going to do with that you know <laughs> anyway um but the, the, i joke aside i'm sure there's some fantastic ieps out there but i'm not a fan so we developed these student passports which was based on these ideas of metacognitive discussions with learners so what we want to do is to engage young people in talking about their learning and what they're doing and what they find difficult and how we find those solutions and so if we identify the stresses in that learning conversation and then we try and reduce some of those stresses so it could be lunchtime's really difficult i'll tell you what let's pre-order the food and then it'll be delivered to this room quietly and you can listen to some music and just that's a nice part for you to get through that period of the day fantastic you know 
and then actively teaching coping responses as well, which is really important. I think that's something I'd like to talk a little bit more about. So maybe that's something we could, we could follow up as, as the uh, conversation goes on. So in essence, uh, you know, I, understanding what stresses are, having that learning conversation with young people and then actively teaching coping. We change that balance, if you like, tip the seesaw a different way. And automatically talking about stress and, and stresses and how we find solutions, that's a really solution-focused way of thinking, isn't it, I think? And it really involves the young people in their learning. And when I do some training now and I use some of the old films we did at school like 10, 15 years ago, what really strikes me when I reflect on this is that almost always in the film are autistic girls. And that wasn't an active choice, you know, it's just how it happened. I think we were just looking for people that were pretty good at describing their challenges and what, what you know, the various diagnosis and needs meant to them. And we're also happy to be on film. And it just happened to be that autistic girls were often the, the, the students that, that were used in those films. And there was no conscious choice. But on reflection, it's really interesting, I think. So I think we can change this discussion about things by the language we use. I think language is really important. Using the language of stress and understanding that reducing stresses whilst actively teaching coping responses changes that balance but also understanding that our coping responses aren't always the same. So when you hear like, well, uh, Thursday morning, you have a, um, a mass test every week and say, well, you managed that last week. Well, this week, maybe they've been having a poor sleep because a younger sibling is up in the night. Maybe they got a cold. Maybe the taxi was late. So actually the strategies or the things we have, the tools to cope are fewer on that day, despite the fact the stressor is the same. So this is why having systems to be able to work with individuals is really important within whole school approaches. Nice. And as you were talking about that, Gareth, I was thinking about how for a teacher, uh, whatever stage of their career, to have the sort of emotional and mental capacity to think about others in that way when they're perhaps feeling so much pressure to meet certain targets and deadlines all the time, it, it can be something that's really easy to overlook. And it, it got me thinking back to sort of the start of my career when I don't think I had very good emotional awareness when I was an NQT. And I can distinctly remember thinking about, you know, certain children children how they would annoy me how they would push my buttons how I felt like they were getting under my skin and looking back now I see things so differently like I really pride myself now on on being really self-aware of my own emotional state and you were talking earlier about this kind of stress contagion idea how important do you think it is with dealing with these young people that teachers themselves have really good sort of self-awareness and but also that we really look after the well-being of staff uh, oh, 100%. I think you've absolutely nailed it there, in my view. Every training or every involvement I have coaching schools or working with them intensively as a school in, in Portugal, I'm doing a big piece of work at the moment that's been curtailed. I've been there for two years and I've, I've got more to go, but obviously I'm at home at the moment because of the restrictions. But, um, you know, everything we do, we start with the, the staff and the parents and carers and their stress. You know, because if you're stressed as an individual, you not only limit what you're able to do with the young people, so, but you're highly likely to pass that stress on to other people. Yeah. So it's really important. So um, as we're focusing in this podcast, uh, mainly about schools and things, I, I, I suppose I'll just 
rattle through some of the things I think that are pretty important for school well-being and staff well-being. Now, you know, there, there was a bit of a, a push, I think, sort of five, six, seven, eight years ago of, well, staff well-being and all this, and where they said, well, right, we'll put on yoga on a Thursday night. You know what I mean? I'm thinking, flipping X is going to cause me more stress. I mean, I know it's not a video we call this, but I'm not sure I can get my leg around the back of my head. Anyway, but the point is that anything that's a blanket policy is likely to cause some people stress. So another example of this is, well, we shut off the school emails at seven o'clock. That's all right. Well, if I've got a young family that put to bed, maybe between eight and half eight is where I need to just do some emails and things because I want to be with my family when they get home. Or the other classic is, right, everybody out of the school building four o'clock on a Friday. I might want to stay till six on a Friday to plan next week so I have the whole weekend with my family. So anything to do with stress and well-being on a whole staff level needs to allow for personalization. Right. I think there needs to be sessions which allow people flexible choice. So there may be one inset day we spread throughout the year. And we used to do sessions where the art teacher would teach us how to do various types of drawing skills. We had uh, somebody that was really interested in having a little business making cakes and things. You could go and learn how to bake something and took it home and things like, you know, all these sort of things. But there also was, and this is the key thing for me, the element of choice. There are also the choice where you could just do your own thing. And actually, maybe for uh, a, a, a young teacher or a teacher with young kids or whatever, being able to get home straight away, put all the bedding in the wash, change all the bedding, sort out a few things and know, know that I can do that before the kids come home from school. Or maybe for some, actually, and this is what I always chose, but anyway, go down the pub and have a pint and just reflect and talk about things, you know hugely important for me that as a young teacher just being able to, to talk in different things so I think the key thing is to understand how important it is to start with staff to allow that personalized and flexible approach uh, and to have that professional trust I think is, is really important within it um, and, and so I think generally speaking in education anything that's a blanket policy causes somebody some bother somewhere you know it's about how you address that and, and I don't think that's a sign of weakness I think that's a real sign of strength yeah I think you've nailed that and I think what I've really seen in the school I work in now is I feel like we're a really emotionally literate school as well in that staff are very good at expressing how they feel and I just think that's a really that's a really positive culture if you're expecting that of children if staff can let each other know where they're at in different ways again not in some blanket form but everyone knows they've got someone mm. they can talk to and so on I mm. think that's really healthy yeah yeah I think following this on a little bit Gareth um we know that many of our children come in school with a different perspective about what acceptable behaviour actually looks like. So to what extent do you think that behaviour should be explicitly taught to children, for example, through routine and how we should interact with one another? And to what extent do you think that behaviour approaches should be driven by the leadership of the school, for example, rather than by the individual teachers? Yeah, I, I think this is a really complex and fascinating area. And I think one thing that I would say I've learned a lot is that actually one approach does not suit everybody. So if you're working with a small rural primary school in Cheshire, or I'm working with a big international school in, in South America, they're completely different places, you know, completely different sort of ethoses, cultures. Uh, and it's about really understanding how you set that tone within your uh, your setting, I think, that's really important. And so I think when we think about um, 
anything to do with uh, sort of challenges that young people present to us, for example, you know, there's absolutely no doubt that some of these challenges are when stresses get too much, environmental factors, et cetera, et cetera, or, or you know, there have been um, things that we could potentially change that have added fuel in a often unintended way. You know, people are just trying to do their best and it, it, it's sort of tipped over the balance if that makes sense but also you know kids are kids <laughs> you know we've all done it ourselves haven't we we thought yeah so this i'm gonna stab paul with a pencil i'll get sent out that avoids that that's, that's fantastic yeah and, and, and this is again how sometimes whole school systems get an idea and sort of half put it in so you know good examples about this are things like feelings thermometers i don't know you've seen these where when you get to 60 degrees do your breathing exercises well you didn't do your breathing exercise well nobody taught them the breathing exercises so i'm not surprised or you've got a timeout card do you ever have these you know things like this and you're thinking maths test wednesday afternoon <laughs> so this i'm going to play me joker here we have time out can't see you i'm off for a brew uh, you know crack on uh, and the reality is the whole school systems need to support the structure and one of the biggest things that i go on about a lot of the time is i don't think i think where this goes wrong i don't think you collect the right information so you might have a secondary school that's saying he's got 852 behavior points okay so what does that mean you know, help me out here. Uh, and actually, just knowing that isn't really helpful. I want to know when things are happening. How can we track that through? Well, actually, 670 of those are happening 10 minutes before lunch. OK, let's have a conversation and try and find out why that's happening. All right. Or most of those are happening with female teachers. Right. Well, there's something we need to understand and, and work on there, isn't there? And analyze that. So I think a lot of the time we don't collect the right information. Uh, and then we don't have the right systems to deal with that information, okay? Uh, and this needs to sit within a framework that's very clear and explicit. So I think when I, uh, you know, occasionally I, I, I get asked to go and uh, sort of review different settings or go and have a look at things and, and do these sort of things, I think if there's a policy, any sort of policy really, that's like 30-odd pages with loads of flow charts and things like that, I'll be reading it after about 10 pages, oh, I have no clue how you follow that, you know what I mean? Good systems are simple, yeah. And so when I first started teaching, we had one rule. Right. And we developed this one rule through necessity because literally it was carnage. You know what I mean? Those uh, nine year nines. Uh, I swear for the first sort of term, if it wasn't bolted down, it spent some time in the air. Literally, you know, it's a duck as the teaching system was launched. No, I, I joke aside, but it was absolute carnage. And then we developed really simple systems about the structure of the lesson, how we started, and also that there was only one voice speaking at any one time. And that was our rule. And that rule allowed us to establish this calm, purposeful environment. Because if I was giving some instruction at the beginning of the lesson, we, oh no, hold it, Stephen, one second. I'm just going to finish this, then you'll have your turn. It is an easy management way of working. The other thing I think is really important is understanding processing time. I think there was a problem perhaps 10, 15 years ago where people talked about the pace of the lesson. And, you know, do you remember all this? And it's like a bloody runaway train. I thought, I'm exhausted here, five-period day. Goodness me. No wonder I enjoyed a pint after work. Anyway, but the <laughs> point is, the reality is, you should give at least 10 seconds processing time. So given instruction... Give 10 seconds processing, check for understanding, go. Now, 10 seconds is a long time. And I don't think as teachers, we're very good at shutting up. And, and I know I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> so actually forcing myself 
to give kids processing time, having a simple rule about one voice at any one time, and establishing the fact, you know, I'm the teacher, I'm controlling the learning environment here. Do you know what I mean? That's my job. That's what they're paying me to do, you know. Um, it, it, it can be simple. I think we sometimes overcomplicate things, which then means you get the fragmentation uh, and things go wrong. Yeah, I think that's some brilliant advice. You've got me thinking about a few things there. The first was that I kind of forgotten how many staff meetings I sat in in the first few years of teaching. My first school I worked in had got itself into special measures. And as we know, the, the reasons behind that are often incredibly complex in a school. But in our case, behaviour was definitely a key part of that. And we'd often have these staff meetings which were needed where we talked about behaviour. But I, I used to really demoralise me how many of those conversations fell into just a chat about how we're going to punish the children when they do the wrong thing rather than about this idea of behavior for learning and that was something that was good on my training they talked a lot about behavior for learning and how that's our ultimate aim we want the behavior that enables children to learn you also got me thinking about just how important it is that leaders do support their their staff and we have a, a wide sort of listening audience to this podcast many uh, teachers at the start of their career too and i know feeling supported by your senior leaders is incredibly um, empowering uh, when you're dealing with complex needs or even even when you're not dealing with complex needs having that support from your leaders who are clear about those systems and you're so right if, if it's 20 page policies no one can keep up with that can they and then lastly I just yeah really want to reinforce what you said there about the processing that that's that's another example of a strategy that will benefit all children to give them proper processing and you mentioned cognitive science earlier and we know that the working memory for most people can only cope with about five chunks of information and for many children perhaps with um, processing challenges that might only be two or three that they can contain at one time so when it comes to things like delivering instructions uh, yeah yeah, that's that's a massive thing. Did you want to come back on that, guy? Well, I was just going to say, well, it just reminds me of a, a very probably a, a really key point, actually, which we should have said before. You know, when somebody's in crisis or in, in that moment of dysregulation, actually, uh, they're probably very unlikely to respond to just verbal instructions, but also yeah. processing time takes much longer. Mm. So when somebody is in that moment of dysregulation or is having that real challenging moment of crisis, Often what you find is lots of verbal instructions. Go to the head's office, stop doing that, whatever, you know. And then bang, bang, bang. And actually what we're doing there is just fueling it. So we're passing on our own emotional state to those young yeah. people, not understanding that processing time needs even longer. So uh, a lot of things we do uh, are very simple techniques at those moments of crisis. You know, take two paces back, slow your movements down, calm everything in a, a, a nice slow way allow things to settle before you start working with people and actually the time to plan is when people are calm not when people are in crisis so there's a quote we often use from david petoniak saying that you know when somebody's drowning is not the time to teach them how to swim yeah, yeah often i think systems and behavior policies that are you know are complex and not necessarily as simple like we described before uh, are focused on trying to change behavior at the point of crisis mm. as opposed to understanding the importance of planning and joint working and activating metacognitive discussions as mm. part of systems as opposed to reacting to the presentation if that makes sense absolutely makes sense and you've got me thinking about a lot of children i've worked in the past where i've made mistakes and they've been in that moment of crisis and i've maybe thought i was given a clear concise warning perhaps but actually they've lacked onto one bit of what I said and misinterpreted and I can think of a child who would do that quite frequently and I might say something like thinking I was being useful by giving them a heads up of where we were heading like 
what we don't want to do is get to a point where we need to go home. I might say something like that and he would hear I'm being sent home and then and then really escalate. And I innocently have really added fuel to the fire there in that I've just told him in his head that he's going home when I've not said that. And in my head, I, I, th- I think I'm being helpful by by giving him a heads up of where it will head if things don't change. So I think being conscious, like you said, that when people are in that sort of heightened state, they're going to be taking in bits and pieces of what we're saying. That's not the time to say anything too urgent. And and also I, I, I've seen many staff innocently sort of get children to that point where they seem to be regulating and then it's like right whip them back up again because we're now bringing it straight back to the original issue and they're, they're actually not ready for that yet and children appear to be calm but they're actually just still coming down that roller coaster uh, so, so you joked earlier about us, us all being a bit daft sometimes in a lesson and we want to just do something because it's fun and i'm kind of relieved you said that because i think sometimes when we're talking about behavior we, we we miss the fact that sometimes like humans we're just a bit daft um, and I am fascinated by this idea of personal responsibility. And it's I see quite a lot of arguments flare up on Twitter about this and how much children should be sort of held account for their own behaviour. And perhaps in primary and secondary, it's have slightly different uh, perspectives at times because the stage of their development. And I think as primary teachers, perhaps we, we realise children are very egocentric when they're younger and it takes some time for them to understand how their actions impact others. Do you think there's a stage of a child's development when they kind of, we should become less patient with them when they're, when they're, misbehaving and and is there a stage when children should simply know better i'm not asking that because i necessarily think that i'm just provoking the discussion oh what a, what a question that is and, and i'm going to say to be honest i don't know the answer to that i think and i think the reality is that if somebody was to say to me what, what was my strength as a leader you know i i would say i often use the terms sort of owning my own fragility if that makes sense you know and i think there was so much more that I didn't know and so much more that I wouldn't have a clue about to go about. I suppose what I do know, uh, and, and you know, is that actually some early years practitioners are the most phenomenal professionals I've ever seen. Uh, and I tend to see more um, really, really young, uh, young people in classes when I'm uh, in, in schools abroad, to be honest with you. And I see some phenomenal things. There was a school in uh, the UAE where I was asked to go and um, support a, a, a young teacher with um, an autistic lad that just started in the, uh, the, the sort of preschool area of the school if that makes sense I just sort of sat there had a little play with a lad on the carpet area you know doing a few bits and bobs watch this lesson I was going <laughs> there's absolutely nothing I can tell you and actually I'm making loads of notes here so excuse me while I just get that down and one of the things that stuck in my mind was the way that this um, this young teacher had sort of said well he's a bit obsessed with the light switch so he's going up playing with that and that so I had a word with the caretaker and we just got a spare light switch that was unconnected and put it on his desk so that he could play with it there and then he wasn't getting up disturbing other people <laughs> fantastic do you know what I mean isn't that great uh, and I think going into secondary school one of the things we used to do a lot of was in, in year seven as soon as they arrived we gave people responsibility so you might be in your first class with a teacher year seven all new to school not sure you'd know about the young people from transition and things but you say right will you go and take this to so and so please you know and if they'd come from a primary school where that wasn't used or maybe they were uh, uh, quite a challenging young person in the primary setting and they were thinking what, you want me to just go? And like, you know, I said, yeah, just go and take that for me. You know what I mean? So we give people trust and responsibility right from the start. And I think 
how you do that uh, and the expectation in a school is really important within that. And so you can set that culture, that ethos, I think, uh, with responsibility from, from the start. Uh, and that's where, for me, it's about good leadership. It's about how you have clear aims about what you're expected to do. And, and you know, we had 1,300 kids in the school aged 11 to 16. There were, you know, between 55 and 60 young people with education, health and care plans. Uh, many of our uh, learners who had autism diagnosis had been permanently excluded or not attended other schools because of the nature of how we work. So, you know, we, we were quite a big sort of place. When I'm showing people around the school or, you know, uh, walking to somebody else to do a meeting, the, the corridors are silent, you know what I mean? Because the kids are where they should be. I think if you go into school and there's loads of kids about everywhere when the lesson's on, I think, what's happening here? Uh, you know, so uh, to me, I think uh, it's about understanding your setting, but also understanding that any strategy that we would talk about has to be age-related and socially acceptable. So, uh, you know, a strategy an autistic girl may use uh, who's age seven may not be the same one they're using at 19. Do you know what I mean? Which is why that idea of personalised approaches sort of come back. So I don't know whether I answered your question there or not, or, or ducked it. <laughs> it, was, it. It was a bit of a sneaky no. question, that one. Anyway, yeah, it was, a, it was a tricky one. And I, of course, there's not one age when suddenly, but that's it got me thinking about how important relationships are, aren't they, in knowing individual children and and you you know when a child is is just choosing to be a little bit a little bit difficult because it's fun but that comes through the relationship mm. the amount of times i i've said to you in first look i'm fairly certain nobody comes to work to be told to work you know what i mean and you can have that conversation <laughs> when you've got the relationship with people because you just mm. honest about it do you know what i mean uh, and i i think that's where it's really important and you know it does boil down to relationships at the end of the day, doesn't it? You know, I was just reflecting on my own situation, actually, where uh, our boy, he had me as his year six teacher, me as deputy head teacher. Mum worked in a school as well in primary. So so we're, we're so tight knitting and it's like a magnifying glass for the poor boy to go through. And he went through a couple of dodgy years. I remember year four in particular, very challenging year for him and in year six you could see the transition but actually when he got to secondary where we as parents panicked the most they they took it on so well and and they did that give him the responsibility from the off you're in a new secondary setting your mum and dad aren't here to help you and actually that nurture and responsibility he he flourished so much because he's a he's academically uh, able anyway but actually needed that responsibility in himself to assist him with learning about his emotional regulation, et cetera. So actually that's uh, fantastic that you mentioned that because sitting here, I'm thinking, yeah, that's exactly what his school did. And it was the right time for him to do that. So really enjoyed listening to you say that. And I, I've got to say, purely anecdotal, but in my experience working with young people who've, you know, had pretty difficult historical times in education and, and uh, you know, experiences at schools and that, Actually, the young people others may say are the most challenging are often the most responsible. Yeah, you know, I, I think because yeah. they know what it's like. <laughs> They've been on the end of it. <laughs> thing. And uh, I, I think it, it, it's really, really important that to understand that how working with young people and families is that idea of that sort of collaboration 
you know, that's important. Mm. And, you know, I think of the 25 years I, I was working in schools, I think probably 22 of those, I was a governor as well, either as a staff governor or most lately as a co-opted governor in my own right. Um, and, you know, I think the idea of governance asking the right questions about things, particularly exclusion data and things like that, is really important. Uh, and also in that, supporting the school cultures and how we go. And I think our link governor, our send governor, was, was fantastic uh, in my support if you like, as my sounding board, the, the person who offered me supervision as as way of that working. And one thing that really sticks in my mind is um, I work with quite a few different head teachers in, in the schools I've worked with, but one of them that, that just started and, and was um, new new head, uh, and we were sat in a meeting where a year seven young person had been on a fixed term exclusion for two days. And so um, the, the, the mum had come into the meeting uh, with the young person and myself and the head would always meet as part of the reintegration meeting uh, with that young person. Thing. And the first thing the head said after we'd got a brew and settled down and things like that, uh, and he just said, well, mum, you know, what do you think we could do differently? Uh, and, and mum just burst into tears, you know, and I, I knew her very well. Uh, and she said, I've never been asked that before. Uh, and I think it's not to say that we can definitely do what was suggested or that it's going to work, but it's offering that way of collaboration, I think. So a very simple use of language immediately created a very different environment, which actually over five years uh, uh, allowed us to, to work very well. Uh, and, and I think as well, when we think back about preparation for adult and what we want for, for young people to succeed, uh, a young lad uh, came to us with an educational health and care plan um, a, a diagnosis of autism um, in year nine and hadn't attended a secondary school at that point for, for various reasons, uh, left us with a, a, um, a C in GCSE art and, and an entry-level maths qualification. And his, his grandmother, who was his primary carer, stopped me on the train station when I was coming back beleaguered after a, you know, a, a conference under the school like half ten at night or something off the train. She said, oh, God, can I just tell you, said, you know, um, Chris has been able to go to a Comic-Con convention with some mates on his own and read a book for pleasure and I thought that is just fantastic and I think if you're thinking about skills for life if you're able to have an interest mm -hmm. and have mates or people that can join in that interest with you whatever that might be and you're able to still access learning or education in some way yeah I, I think you've got opportunity in life and for me it's very much about a young person that came to us who had had a very poor time previously engaging in education We'd work with him and try to support him and his family in a way that by the time now he's 18, 19, he had some opportunity. And I think that's understanding that as a pathway, I think is probably pretty important in the wider scheme of things. Yeah. Absolutely. Gareth, one thing we're actually fascinated to know is to what extent you think schools should explicitly teach children about the range of needs, disabilities, conditions or characteristics of other children and adults around them. Is this something you think is important and if so how do schools best do that oh absolutely and, and some might say i'm a bit obsessed with this idea of peer education how the curriculum represents the different disabilities and needs and things like that and i think there's tons we can do on that you know we had um life education as a lesson which was the old sort of pshe re and everything it was so it's quite a decent amount of time 
And as part of that, we, we made sure that there was a lot to do with understanding of difference and, and equality and disability. And so we did some work with an organisation called the Anti-Bullying Alliance on Disabled Bullying and developed some schemes. And there's a film that we did with them that was pretty, pretty exciting to get involved with. And also we did some work with the University of Northampton and a good friend of mine, Professor Philip Garner, um, where we, we filmed this in 2010, where we worked with the Kanduko Dance Company and various key members of our staff who were artists and musicians and that. And we called it Notions of Self. So we had a whole day where we worked with young people in our school setting who had additional needs and disabilities, but also the GCSE art and dance and music uh, students as well as others. And we really looked at how we become who we are, you know what I mean? And that idea of who we are as ourself. And, 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 you know, that fed into a scheme of work for year seven in art where they did sort of had a picture of themselves on here and they looked at their good characteristics, things that they thought they could do a bit better. So actually the art scheme of work for year seven was very much about a reflective piece about the individual young people and who they are and how they understood themselves and things like that. And this then fed nicely into some of the work that, that we did where we would work, um, as I say, with individuals and their families talking about their sort of script. Uh, and we did this with every child, so it's not just uh, kids who had additional needs and that. But, you know, watching a year seven student stand up in front of their form and say, I would like you to know that I'm autistic. I find this difficult. It would help me if you did this. And then the next child saying, I want you to know that, you know, I've got ADHD. This is... And being open and being able to have that conversation as part of the whole school approach, that was our pastoral way of working. You know, the scheme of working in art supported this. Life education lessons work with this. Some of the specialist teachers from the school we had young people, the special school we had kids on dual role with, would come in and do peer awareness lessons to do about autism and things like that. So we had a real focus where the curriculum supported this uh, and it was hugely powerful. You know, some of the most challenging, if we use that word, whatever that means, um, young people in the school were the most inclusive. You know, you've got to be a bit careful. I remember doing an assembly once and a, a lovely young lady who uh, uh, everybody knew in school, put it that way. We did this sort of assembly and she stopped me on the corner and said, Mr. Moore, she goes, um, you know that assembly you did the other day about sorting people out? I said, well, you know, Hannah with a hearing impairment, well, she was having a bit of bother on the back field, but you don't have to worry about it. I've sorted that for you and I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> and it was one of those real genuine moments where I was thinking yep yeah, let's uh, stop the vigilantes <laughs> anyway but I, I think that, that joking aside there's a lot to be said for how we can support this understanding and I think uh, Brown in the late 90s talked about if we don't actually challenge and educate people on misunderstandings kids often maintain that and think that that's true all the time so if we're teaching a maths lesson and somebody uh, uses a, a disabled term or, or perhaps um, uh, offers a misconception to do autism or something we need to really try and empower the maths teacher there to clarify that at that point not abdicate it down a pass route or pass it down the line because actually we should be using that as a learning opportunity and that to me comes right back to where you started about how much information that is in initial teacher training and understanding that and I would do a couple of blatant shout outs which may get edited out <laughs> you know I've been delighted over the last few years to do quite a bit of work um, with Keith Ferguson at Mid-Essex School Based Initial Teacher Training uh, and I'm doing a session again with them this year where we're talking exactly about the things we've talked about now uh, and what a fantastic group those trainee teachers are in, in that setting and I think Keith does a fantastic job and I've also been very 
fortunate since last summer to be uh, a visiting lecturer at the University of Chester. Uh, and although a lot of my work is on the postgraduate modules to do with uh, sort of complex needs and things, uh, I also have the opportunity to speak to, to the, the, the trainees on that course as well. And I think, again, you know, most of your learning happens when you're in the school, don't you, in the setting of things. But allowing people access and, and opening up those ways of working and allowing that professional discourse has to be an important starting point. And I've got to say, there are some phenomenal young teachers out there. You know what I mean? I, I don't think, you know, every time you talk to somebody, you go and see something and you're thinking, wow, that's good. You know, I don't think yeah. I've ever been able to do that. Um, and, and also, it made me probably realise how poor I was at some things. <laughs> um, and I was probably the worst at starting something and then two weeks later reverting to type. Do you know what I mean? Which is why, again, anything new you embed has to be achievable. And I think that's the problem sometimes in scatterguns of new approaches and policies and lots of things with acronyms and all these sort of things. You don't know whether you're coming or going. So for me, with all of this, simple is most effective. Yeah, I love that. And everything you said about the curriculum there is is spot on. And at a primary level, we've talked a lot in our podcast about representation in literature, of, uh, you know, wide range of people from society. But we've also talked about like we had a beautiful podcast not long ago with Tom Percival, the author who writes a lot about emotional literacy, self-awareness. And, you know, when when I've shared his books with children, I've had conversations like, OK, a main character gets angry really quickly. And this is how how that comes out in his behavior. How would I know? that you're feeling a bit angry in these beautiful discussions of class or, or how would I know that you're anxious and I remember doing that with some year sixes lately and one kid's like oh I chew my hair and another one's like oh I get a funny feeling in my tummy and another one goes oh I go quiet and you can just see how amazed they are as they're hearing from kids who perhaps don't speak very often and they're like oh so when they chew their hair that that's that means they're anxious I never knew that and I, I as a teacher stood at the front thinking oh, I didn't know that and, and and that's what when we thread it into our curriculum those are the kind of conversations we get to have which is very special now we've just got a couple of questions left Gareth and my next one is about the idea of reasonable adjustments what does this term mean and how can we avoid reasonable adjustments being perceived by some as unfair treatment your points about curriculum design would probably go some way to uh, combating that issue well, well particularly in the UK we've got a duty under the Equality Act to provide reasonable adjustments and I, and I think again um, you know one person's definition of reasonable may not be somebody else's which, which again is why we need clarity don't we in what we're doing uh, and so I, I think one of the things that perhaps sums up this quite nicely is, is the sort of saturation model that I developed with uh, Professor Neil Humphrey and Dr Wendy Symes we published this in 2011 where we in effect is a whole school approach to how we uh, well, we developed it in, in basically as part of a four-year study that, that led up to our publication date 10 years ago, where we were looking at how we included uh, autistic learners that had been permanently excluded or not attending previous schools in, in a mainstream education. Uh, and I use this model quite a bit and apply this to um, all sorts of different settings. So I don't think it's the preserve of just works with autistic kids, you know what I mean? It, it makes sense to me. And, and I'll just run through the key themes. And, and if you just typed in the saturation model, you'd find tons on this. You know, <laughs> I was talking to Neil the other day. He goes, you're getting some mileage out of that, aren't you, Gareth? I thought, oh, yeah, thanks, Neil. Anyway, yeah, always appreciate support of your colleagues. So, yeah. um, so we talked about developing the school environment. And that's not just the physical environment. It's the social, the emotional, the communication environment, like we said right at the start. 
having flexible provision, understanding that within a structure, some young people need a slight bit of flexibility. And one of the things I would say is hugely powerful for uh, secondary kids, particularly is doing fewer GCSEs, but pre-learning content of some things so that you get more access to the time. So again, I think one of the things I, I think is hugely powerful for anybody is pre-learning key vocabulary prior to introduction. But I, I think you probably know more than I do about that. Um, direct support intervention, you know, is so, so vital, as you were saying, to actively teach uh, various strategies and coping responses. If you have fewer coping responses and certain things that other kids, stresses that other kids are dealing with well, but you're struggling with, well, it's pretty obvious that you need to teach those people how to deal with it, don't you? Or how, how to develop those skills. And so I'm a massive fan of speech and language therapists. You know, we, we had two speech and language therapists as part of our team, uh, our own EP and our own psychotherapist. And, and I, I think I learned the most from conversations with our speech and language therapists, hugely powerful. Um, policy and, and practice needs to support the way of working. There's too often, I think, policies that have unintended consequences that cause uh, challenges on the sort of ground level, if that makes sense, on the day-to-day. -day. Um, training and development for staff is essential. One of my massive bugbears, and I, I sort of have to calm down every time I think about this, is that how many times have we been in an inset day where you say got 100 staff there, you get exactly the same input and expect everybody to be able to implement it equally? Now, if I've got 100 staff there, I might have 90 that can just crack on. I might have four or five that need a bit more coaching or support. I might have a couple of people that we've got to just modify what we're doing. And I might have some people that we have to do something quite intensive. But the assumption that everybody can just implement something, it's usually September behavior policy. And there's a new system on the computer with... 87 different buttons. It's, it's like trying to navigate LinkedIn. Jeez, good luck to you. Anyway, uh, peer education and awareness, essential, like I was saying before, you know, hugely powerful in our model and creating a positive ethos. You know what I mean? I don't think anybody um, hates being told they've done something good. Now, they might not want to do it publicly or haven't come up for a certificate in assembly, but we had a very simple system. Most schools have a tech system where you can say, don't come in today, it's snowing, or don't forget it's training day or whatever. You can, on all those systems, send personalised messages. So having a list of young people and having support staff write a positive thing, parent or carer gets a text at two in the afternoon that says, Dave did a brilliant bit of artwork today, have a look in his bag or... He was fantastic in music today, Ahmed. Just look at this, you know. Uh, and, and what we do is we call about arming families with positives. You know what I mean? Very simple things. We can get a member of administrative staff to spend half an hour each day Finding out the positive text makes a massive difference. So creating that positive cycle of improvement is part of that idea of co-production and collaboration. And I think, in essence, that's what feeds into this idea about, you know, understanding individuals within the system and, and understanding what's reasonable is, is about supporting people's knowledge, isn't it, really, I think. I mean, I don't want this conversation to come to a close, to be honest, in any shape or form. We have got one further question for you, if we may, uh, because you once kind of recognised that supporting every child to be successful is arguably the most rewarding and incredible bit of teaching. Looking back over your career, Gareth, what examples stick in your mind where you've seen a child's experience of school really transform for the better as a result of inclusive practice? Oh, now, you, now, yes. Now, I, I, as you can imagine, I've got tons of stories. And I think <laughs> um, 
Yes. Some of which we can share, some we can't. Uh, um, but uh, we, we do an after-hours podcast with some of the more exciting ones. No, uh, I think, I mean, a good example the other day, you know, lockdown, we, we're doing things differently, aren't we? We're, we, you know, perhaps reconnecting with people we haven't connected with before and things like that. So, you know, some of the people I taught when I was 21 are now in their late 30s with their own families, you know what I mean? Uh, and there was a big group, so some of those that I know quite well still, and I'm still in touch with, which is fantastic. And because uh, that school's quite close to where I live, uh, I've sort of reconnected again being at home more because I've got a bit more time, you know, rather than being in hotels or going to an airport or wherever and things like that. Uh, and the other Saturday was a fantastic little discussion on, on Facebook with a few of these uh, young people, but young people, adults now, aren't they, with kids? I mean, some of them have got like 17-year-old kids themselves, anyway. Uh, and they were talking about um, this lesson where I was in school, uh, you know, in, in the 90s there, and they, they all recalled this time where my pants split down the back seam like this, you know what I mean? Uh, and literally, everybody chipping in, there were people I hadn't heard from for ages all coming, oh, we remember that, <laughs> <laughs> there anyway but the, the key to that was i'll never forget this because it was on a parents evening and it like literally happened at like nine or something in the morning and then a kid in year 11 told me at like three in the afternoon just as i was going into the parents evening, oh you didn't realize that your pants were split this morning so yeah thanks for that anyway and it was just such a story i mean this is 26 years ago or so, I don't know. And, and just all those people feeding into that was amazing. And the other thing I think that really sticks in my mind, I've got some lovely artwork here um, in my office. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll perhaps be able to get a picture that, that we could send or attach or something like that uh, by a young lady called Gabby, who um, was a wheelchair user, um, had additional needs as well. Uh, and, and she got an A star in a GCSE art looking about uh, herself. So it's a, it's a picture where the, the back of the wheelchair say, look beyond the disability, look at me sort of thing. Uh, and Gabby's just done a master's degree in counselling and psychotherapy and supporting other disabled people uh, with, with therapeutic support and things from her own view. And, and when she was in year 10, uh, I remember going with Gabby to all the uh, feeder primary schools where we were doing... Um, a little bit of sort of an inclusive session where she we had this amazing wheelchair that lifted up, made her stand up right, and all this. And all these little kids are going, Whoa, it's like a transformer, and all this. And Gabby was loving it, and she was giving them all. And it was so empowering, it's amazing. And seeing how that young person now is, is making such a difference for, for other young people as they're going through, I think is hugely empowering. So, you know, I, I, I think tons of people would say similar things, but I think. To be able to hear those stories and see it personally and still being in touch with those young people and their parents and carers, some who are great friends of mine now, uh, I, I think it's really fantastic. So I, I, I think I've been very fortunate with that regard. That's beautiful. And Gareth, I can't help but sneak in just one little extra that I've just thought of, which is that I think at the time we're probably going to release this podcast, it will be around the start of March as, as schools are potentially bringing their, lots of pupils back uh, during the lockdown. So do you have any advice for schools because i think there's i'm not expecting you to have all the answers because i know this is a really complex issue about what to get right but there's loads of talk of catch-up there's people talking about well-being there's talk, people talking about reconnection if you were sort of back in your school now and you were thinking right we're about to bring back hundreds of children many of whom haven't been in school for a very long time where would you prioritize your time and energy I think, as you say, there's so much to this, and I think I would probably give it a bit more thought, but off firing from the hip, as it were, I think there's a big issue with people assuming every child is traumatised from this or whatever. You know what I mean? I think that the best way to support people is to get people back into to norm, you know, what it, what it was. and, and But 
in doing that, you've got to allow that individual uh, approach as well. So you've got to have good conversations with people. So I would think the first thing we need to be doing, or I would be doing as Senko, would be really getting a good handle on parents and carers' views of where that young person is at that point in time. So, well, he's fine. He's had a great time. He just wants to get back now. Or somebody say, actually, I think this has been a real issue. So, And then looking at what resource we've got to be able to try and support that. Uh, I, I think the, the key for me, again, is understanding that there's, you know, a, a blanket approach is likely going to cause some significant problems for, for some young people. Uh, but also, I think moving away from this idea that everybody is really traumatised and miles behind and all this sort of pathologically saying that there's this massive problem, I think it, it is a big issue. And I think, you know, we thrive on the routines and the normality of things. And that's probably most important for most people. Uh, and also, I'd just chuck in there that, you know, I, I've done a lot of work with young people who have not attended school for two, three, four years. Uh, and we've uh, re-engaged them with education, worked with the families, done it very slow. And I think the key to this is not rushing it or prescribing what you do. Look at the individual. That's a brilliant response. And particularly considering I sprung that on you at the last minute, Gareth. So thank you. I think that's really refreshing, sensible, calm advice. What a pleasure it's been to talk to you. And I know we've probably just scratched the surface of some of the things we could talk about in greater detail, but I've learned a huge amount tonight. Thank you. Um, if you want to follow uh, Gareth, he's an absolute whiz on Twitter. He knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, he's at GD Morewood. Um, make sure to please take a moment and leave us a beautiful five-star uh, rating if you can on our podcast because it really helps other people to come across don't shoot the deputies and to enjoy it but gareth what a pleasure it's been to have some of your time uh, you're just a lovely lovely man and i just think everything you shared with us tonight is golden thank you very much thank you very much Jess. it's been a pleasure don't shoot the deputies